1: Hello and welcome again to Godpod. And uh, we are well into our second century now. This is um, Godpod. Speak for yourself. (laughs) I'm very old. Older than I sound. Everybody's been telling me I'm too quiet on Godpod. Sorry? (laughs) So I'm trying to speak up a bit. (laughs) And Because uh, it's very important that Mike and Jane don't get all the good lines Yeah, here, I think so.
0: we, you definitely need Graham to overrule us. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so if you're uh, new to Godpod, this is um, uh, me, Graham Tomlin, and I normally host these slightly rambling discussions that we have. And um, we also have Michael. Hello. Michael Lloyd, and also Jane Williams. Hello. So it is the old team, the team that you've been used Not as old to as hearing. you were suggesting, but yes. Maybe not quite as old, <laughs> but the team that you've been used to listening for many, many times. If you've uh, listened to Godpod before. So um, we're going to launch into uh, some fascinating questions that have been sent in by listeners to Godpod all over the world. And um, I'm going to start with one from uh, somebody called Mike Rand, who lives down on the south coast in Weymouth. That's the south coast of England, for those of you who are not part of this this part of the world. And uh, he says he's an avid listener and Godpod for many, many years, um, but still has all kinds of questions about Christian faith and everything else.
0: Good gracious. we not answered them all yet. <laughs>
1: <laughs> even after 100 Godpods, even after all those hours of talking, there's still questions out there. Unbelievable, isn't it? Anyway, some really good questions here. And um, he says this. My block to faith surrounds the issue of evolution and atonement. And uh, the problem is this. Modern sciences have advanced the theory of evolution to such a degree that church leaders now accept that we've evolved over millions of years. This being the case, there could never have really been an actual Adam and Eve. Instead, we've gradually evolved into the human species we see today. If there were no Adam and Eve, there could be no original sin requiring God's forgiveness. If there's no original sin, there's no reason for God to sacrifice his only son, Jesus of Nazareth difficult to understand why a loving, caring God wouldn't be able to forgive us our sins without the brutal death of Jesus. Why not forgive us without such savage death? So there is um, our question and it uh, revolves around both evolution, creation and atonement and the link between those issues. So um, who wants to kick off on this one? Well I'll I'll kick off on the evolution
2: bit partly because I'm currently editing a book on the problem of evil in the light of Evolutionary theory and modern genetics. So, uh, evil and evil evolution. Evolution, yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I wanted it to be called that with ev- evil evolution, but I don't think <laughs> the publisher is impressed. I would say. Um, and uh, there's th- a really good and really important question. I, th- I think there is actually a way of holding evolution together with belief in a uh, historic fall of some sort. Uh, In fact, in some ways, I think evolution requires some such fall. Let me try and explain a little bit. Uh, If you have the evolution of hominids with an increasing intellectual ability, social ability, moral awareness, aesthetic sense, uh, sense of the divine, sense of of, um, some reality beyond themselves, uh, and if at a certain point there's enough of that, um, f- f- for us to constitute something new, um, in the same way, an uh, analogy I've heard used quite often is that of a, of a gas tap. If you turn it on to start with, there's not enough gas in the air for it to ignite. Turn it on a bit more, still not. a Bit more, still not. At the particular point, there's enough gas-air ratio uh, for the thing to ignite. So you can have a completely smooth development, and yet something new and decisive a point happening. Something changes. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Okay. now As evolution.
1: An accumulative process.
2: Yeah. Yep evolution isn't a smooth process but nevertheless you could have a growing sense of hominid capability and god could at some point say Now this there's enough moral awareness and spiritual awareness and physical ability and relational ability for me to relate in a new way to this creature
1: and is that related to the the um the sense that god gives you know, places his image upon humanity. Is that what you mean? Yes, yes. It,
2: th- th- there's enough of them okay. reflecting yeah. who I am now yeah. uh, for me to say, yes. The, these, are the image image. Okay. The, these are people who bear my image. These are people who can ha- p- have particular roles within creation
0: and particular kinds of relationship, a different understanding of relationality. Yeah. Exactly.
2: Yeah. Okay. okay. So how does how does the fall fit into well, that? Well, the fall then? fits into that because uh, if if you have there's a particular point in which there's enough moral awareness for a creature to be held accountable for their actions. Um, now logically there must therefore have been a first point at which a morally responsible creature made a morally culpable decision. That logically there must have been such a case a point. So I actually think evolution requires a uh, a historic fall in some sense. Now what we do know from modern genetics is that it is very unlikely that a single human pair, reproductive pair, were the progenitors of the whole human species. So I don't think that makes a whole lot of difference to the matter. The point is, at a particular point, human beings became uh, human enough to be considered in the image of God, and at a particular point after that, they took a wrong turn. Mm. Okay.
0: That's, that's very interesting, and 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 of course, um, whatever your position about original sin. Um, there is no doubting that uh, we sin, that the world is a place of violence and um, and misunderstanding and flawedness. um, So that uh, God's response to that um, needs to be in relation to that sinfulness, whether it's original or ongoing, doesn't it? So, So then...
1: Yeah. The other point that's always struck me about... Original sin is, is that if if you actually think that there wasn't a historical fall, in other words, there wasn't a point at which, in some way or another, humans or some you know early form of life you know, took took that morally culpable decision to turn away from God and do what was evil towards God and towards one another. If, if that never happened, in other words, if evil has always been part of reality, if it's always been part of reality, right from the very beginning then actually you don't have any category for thinking it could ever be any different. In other words, it's always going to be here. Uh, There's no real way of thinking of this world without evil and sin, which actually is quite a depressing prospect. The fact that that actually it's here to stay, there's nothing we can do about it. It's basically something that's just part of human life. It's part of reality. It's part of creation. It's an indelible part of of this world. And in some ways... You know the, the proposition that you know Christians always said that you know there is there was you know originally creation was good, I, originally humanity was good, but we went wrong. Gives you a category for thinking it's possible to imagine it getting right again.
2: As Derek Kinner says, um, if evil and suffering do not have the first word in creation, they need not have the last. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But there's also that, that sense that if um, they are just part of how things are, why do we worry about them? You'd think we would yeah. sort of take them for granted. Yeah. But there's this sense that we know they're wrong. wrong. Yes, exactly. Yeah. We, we,
1: we feel uncomfortable about it. Yeah. We want to get rid of it. And we, we have all kinds of utopian dreams that have always been around in human life, you know, political ideas, sort of philosophical ideas of of imagining a, a, kind, of, a kind of utopia. Now, where does that desire come from, actually, if sin and evil have always been they're just part of the fabric of everything mm. and it seems to we have a deep instinct to say that they just they just don't belong here that they're, they're, they're not part of nature they're part of nat- their nature gone wrong and so it seems to me that only a a proper doctrine of the fall as a historical um, occurrence gives you any 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 possibility of hope in the end that evil and sin might one day be banished
2: and explains
1: our deep
2: sense of wrongness about about evil about suffering about death actually
1: yeah yeah so in, in terms of mike's question um am i right in saying mike you would say it doesn't matter too much whether there's an actual original adam and eve figures but that that the um the, the jump from that to say there is no original sin that, that that link link doesn't work that actually you you can believe in a a process of evolutionary development with this idea that at some point human beings acquire enough kind of moral ca- capacity um ability to relate to one another and to, and to god that they are they are able to bear the image of god uh, and then uh, uh, we've come... So actually, you, you don't worry too much about whether there's a physical, uh, there's a, there's an actual Adam and Eve, but you do worry whether there's an actual fall. Is that right?
2: Well, I mean, I think there must have been a, a first moment at which a human being took a, a morally culpable decision,
1: yes. Um, and that you could think of as being kind of Adam and Eve, is that yeah,
2: right? Yes, I mean, of course, Adam yeah. <laughs> means kind of earth man, man, and yeah. therefore is probably Morgan going, on, you know, it's not like calling him Steve. You know. <laughs> 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 There's something else yeah, going it's on there. Steve's fault, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. But, but yeah. I mean, I think original sin... Uh, is slightly different from the concept of the the fall. Original sin is is the consequence of Mm. what happens at the fall, how it happens. There's a whole lot of different theories as to how, Mm. Mm. uh, of which Augustine's idea of transmission through reproduction is only one. Mm. Um, And I personally, Jane might take a different view on this, uh, but I personally think that that is more complicated now Mm. Mm. that we've discovered genetically that most human beings are not descended from single mm. pair um, but
1: throughout yeah but there are but other ways whole, of, thinking another of, way of, of thinking of ways myself. in which one generation's mistakes and tragedies and pain is passed on to the next generation you can kind of imagine how that happens creates um, hurts which
2: yes. which exactly. then produce reactions yeah. which then produce hurts then produce the that then we're never no, quite
1: born with a totally clean slate exactly nobody has the, the chance to
0: completely yes. choose yeah freely yes which in a sense was augustine's point that we're not
1: we're not just individuals born with entirely clean slate we're part of a mass of humanity which is all bound up in this network of pain and tragedy and sin and so on and and therefore we are compromised from the very moment we're born and that that just seems to be observably the case
0: yes absolutely
1: yeah we're going on to the second half of the question um we've talked about creation adam and eve the fall and so on but um what about this question about um Uh, the sacrifice of Christ because I guess the question is there does that not seem rather unnecessary why does why cannot God forgive without this bloody death of Jesus uh, on a cross outside Jerusalem in AD 33 or whenever it was why did it require um, death pain um, brutality for forgiveness to happen
0: and of course part of the answer to that is that um, of course God does forgive and that's why God comes, God the Son comes to live the incarnate life to to demonstrate, provide um, uh, an uh, an encounter with the forgiving God. So it isn't that God um, the Father turns away his face until the Son is dead. Mm -hmm. Um, the, The coming of the Son is entirely God's act of Um, forgiving love, when we were still far off God met us in his son and brought Mm. us home Um, not you know, once Jesus was dead Um,
1: and it was God in Christ reconciling the world for himself not God over against Christ exactly, yes
0: so the whole um, of of the action of God is the action of a forgiving God Um, and the other thing that of course that um, catchphrase sort of that, that way of describing it forgets is that it isn't God, who hammers the nails into Jesus. <laughs> we do that. Um, so what God is doing is entering into the world of human violence as we have created it in our sinfulness. Um, and uh, and in, in that sense, becoming completely one with um, the world that we, have, the, uh, that we have made in our sinfulness. And um and the reason why that is um is a necessary part of God's forgiveness is that how can God simply say to, to um people who've um you know, killed each other, raped, brutalized, maimed each other, Oh, I forgive you and yet remain a God who takes seriously what has been done to victims, takes seriously the injustice of the world. Um uh, it's as though we, we, we need to unpack the concept of forgiveness, isn't it? What does it mean for God to forgive? Does he just say, let's, let's pretend it didn't happen? Because how is that a proper response to the reality and of, of, of the destructiveness of the world? Um, and so God's extraordinary action is um, both to take a completely seriously our free choice to be awful and brutal and yet to say and that's not the end of it. Your action is not does not limit what God can can do in this sense, and it does not undermine God's justice. Yep. I could go on for another half an hour about that, but those are the sort of starting <laughs> yeah, places sure. I'd like to start from.
2: And of course, the, we've mentioned this in a number of God parts, but there's a, there's a great uh, slogan of the early church, isn't there? that that's, that which is not assumed is not healed, that which God doesn't enter into and take into Himself. Mm-hmm doesn't get healed in, in, in the person of Christ. And, and therefore there's a sense in which, why does Christ have to die? Because death needs to be undone. Mm. And how do you undo mortality but bring it into touch with the immortal, mm. the mm. eternal? Mm. And that's what's happening on the cross. You have mortality being taken into the immortal and mm. and healed of its mm. life-shortening and hemorrhaging
1: Consequences. To try to really, when we talk about the atonement, people talk about um, kind of theories of the atonement or whatever, and you, you try to find the one that is the, you know, the absolute final description of exactly this is how the mechanism of atonement works. And I often wonder whether it's better to talk about kind of metaphors of the atonement. In other words, we're trying to understand here something something which is profoundly deep and quite hard to grasp, but. You can get towards it with the use of images and metaphors, which is kind of what we find within the New Testament. We find images of, of a ransom, you know, so of, a, of, a, of a price paid to free a, a slave. Uh, we get images of, of of law courts, of of people being kind of um, justified, or people are being sort of released from there from the sort of penalty of, of sin. And it seems to me that's what that's 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 how we approach this. That you know, we we almost start from the sense that that we can sense that some. Like you say, Jane, you know forgiveness is not cheap, and that's the problem of saying that you know God just says, "Oh, well, I just forgive you." That is just what Bonhoeffer would have called cheap grace,
0: and also dishonouring to the people who who have um, really suffered suffered the consequences of sin.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's 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 something that that if I'm thinking here that that actually when you actually really had to forgive someone who has hurt you badly you know that, that that is not easy, that is not cheap. It actually, it kind of hurts to forgive in a sense, that actually you have to give up your desire or even your right for revenge. Uh, in some ways you have to sort of swallow that and to take it into yourself and to, to, to allow it to to pass by. And so it seems to me that the things are, well, it, why doesn't God just forgive? It is cheapening the act of forgiveness, it's, and, and actually our own experiences of forgiveness, which are tiny compared to God's act of forgiveness, do tell us, it seems to me, that, f- that forgiveness is always a bit of a cost in forgiveness. Um, and and the deeper the the offence, the the more the cost. If it's something trivial, like you know someone steps on your toe, you just say, oh fine, you know that's all right, don't worry, that's not a problem. If someone steals your your wife or your husband, or if someone kills your child that's very very different forgiveness in that case is an extraordinarily difficult thing to do it's a very painful thing to do and it seems to me that when we look into the, the death of christ on the cross we're seeing something of the pain of god that it takes to, to, to forgive the sins of the world
0: and 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 also seeing um i mean th- that um the one who is going to be our judge is one we have victimized so all those victims uh, throughout the world, throughout history, who, whom you know the powerful and the rich and the um, thought well, it doesn't really matter what we do to them, they are the ones that we see in the face of Jesus as we come to meet our judge. So there is this sense of of the utter seriousness with which God takes the cost of sin, um, and uh, and the fact that we can only be transformed by seeing what we have done. And accepting um, God's forgiveness.
2: I think people often compare c- kind of Christian theories of the atonement and of God forgiving with the way we forgive one another. Uh, and, you know, we don't need to, any, anything to die in order to forgive somebody. Uh, and they say, why can't God do the same? But I wonder whether human forgiveness doesn't actually depend in some ultimate way on divine forgiveness. Forgiveness. There's a there's a wonderful novel um by a Russian novelist called or Siberian novelist called um Leonid Borodin called Year of Miracle and Grief. And there's an extraordinary conversation between a boy and his mother um about when he broke the gramophone. Mm. Um and he said, How could you you forgave me for doing it? And she said yes. And he said, Well, well how could you do that given that the gramophone remained broken? Mm. Uh, To which she has no immediate answer, Mm -hmm. uh, as often parents with children's questions, (laughs) I think. Um, And I think there's a profound thing there. And the whole novel is an extraordinary exploration of forgiveness (coughs) in post-Soviet Russia, really. Um, But I think there's a sense that all forgiveness draws on the ultimate putting right of all things. (coughs) Mm. (coughs) Only if, ultimately, things are going to be restored and put right can we forgive one another uh, it draws on the future and of course the beginning of that putting right of all things is the cross when uh, all human pain and muck and grime is, is brought into contact with God
1: yeah
0: and is... and when death is not the end Yes. Um, so when we have put something to death and think we don't need to worry about it anymore we are reminded that's not the case mm. death is not the end mm. the life of God is
1: yeah and to get to that point requires—it's not a straightforward journey. It requires a descent into the very depths of the problem. And I, I think you know I have been taken by this idea that that Christ, in a sense, descends into the very heart of darkness. He, you know, God cannot redeem sin and evil without entering right into the very, very heart of it. That—that that means, and this is a, this is an idea that comes out quite strongly in Calvin's doctrine of of atonement, which is fascinating the more you read it which is that that actually god God in christ enters into the very place of god forsakenness so actually the the worst experience in human life is to know that everyone has abandoned you you know no one is no one is on your side or your friends have abandoned you your family's abandoned you god's abandoned you you're entirely alone that's the worst place to be in your pain and your suffering because sometimes you know pain and suffering can be bearable if people are around you and supporting you but if if you're not only going through pain and suffering but everyone's abandoned you that's the worst place to be and that's precisely the place that God in Christ goes to and then that that the cry of dereliction when Jesus says my God my God why have you forsaken me he enters into that very place where if you like God is abandoned by God in that strange paradox and so actually he does enter into the very heart of darkness to be able to transform it and redeem it and rescue humanity from it. So there's a lot there I think that that helps us begin to see why it it was somehow necessary for for God in Christ to enter into that place of pain and suffering.
0: But not so that God could forgive us. I mean not that God won't forgive us without but because that is what we have made. Yeah. That's that's the yeah. reality. And that is the nature of forgiveness. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Fascinating. Well, thank you, um, Mike, very much for your question. I hope that um, helps to um, begin to answer some of those. We've got a few more um, that also relate to various aspects of the person of Christ and um, uh, his life and, and ministry. And one of them particularly is about um, going from the uh, the end of Christ's life to the beginning of Christ's life. This is one from um, Jeremy, Jeremy Simono from Seattle in the United States. Uh, who says I love the podcast, and I'm in the process of making my way through all 100 shows after discovering it last week.
0: So we'll try not to make too more, too many more, too fast, so yes. that you've got time to catch up.
1: So, I, and I hope
2: you're listening to this in your hospital bed.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, <shut up. laughs>
1: Yeah, I'm sure you've got other things to do besides listening to God. <laughs> Maybe this is your holiday. Anyway, the question was: is this. What can we know about God in Jesus as a baby before Jesus is able to produce any meaningful action or speech? So I guess raises the question of what did Jesus know of his divine calling, identity, when Jesus was a baby? Was he like any other baby? What did he know of that? Did he, did he know Einstein's theory of relativity when he was lying in a manger age? Two weeks. Um, I talked about kind of um, omnipotence, omnipresence, uh, omniscience. I guess if Jesus was the divine Son of God, what did he know of that in his early years? Uh, I think this is a really interesting and a really
2: helpful question because it reminds us that there's more to humanity than our articulate, intellectual. And and active aspects um, that a human there are huge phases of, of human development and condition human conditions uh, where we are not active where we are not articulate where we are not doing things achieving things accomplishing things knowing things uh, but we are very helpless um, and. I think that actually has huge implications for how we view ourselves, for how we view one another and, and humanity
0: as a whole. Absolutely. And that so that sense that um, what really is basic to God is that God is love, um, that is beautifully revealed in um a, a baby utterly dependent um on on the the provision of love in order to survive at all um so it, in some senses that's um a a very important picture of how jesus is god because jesus is you know even as a as a baby dependent on the love of of his of his father that that relationship between jesus and the father that is that is the fundamental thing isn't dependent on what jesus knows or even what jesus does exactly so
2: there's a dependence dependence which we often think of as a bad thing is actually intrinsic to human nature receptivity is actually a a very significant part of what human beings are which is true all the way through our different phases phases
1: of life and conditions of life i suppose it's always weird we're always likely guessing here because the Gospels don't give us a great deal of information about Jesus as a as a baby. I mean, the one story we do have as him as a as a as a sort of um, a young boy is the story of him going to the temple or getting lost in the temple and his parents leaving him behind and you know, just forget he's he's there. Um, and they go back uh, a day later and find him. And then, of course, there he is in the temple courts uh, saying uh, and he says that that's that sentence. Did you not know I must be in my father's house? and we're probably talking Jesus what age 12 or 13 something like that. And uh, so that story does give us a little hint of a, a kind of knowledge of a relationship with his heavenly father at that point. And I guess if you take that back did Jesus know that as a baby? Well, um you know did Jesus know he was the divine son, the second person of the trinity while he was lying in in the manger? Well, maybe not, but you know you think of any human baby, a human baby can quite quickly gain an instinct as to who his or her mother or father is. Um, that doesn't take long to develop because you, you you almost instinctively, the moment you're born, begin to relate to these two people who are who are around you, the one from whom you've you've come, and and uh, and so on. So I, I don't find it that hard to 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 imagine Jesus as a baby knowing, yes, that Joseph was his immediate. Um, sort of human father figure but actually in a more profound way he was dependent on and related to to God as his father in a very special way in the sense same way that you know my children knew in the very earliest days that I was their dad is in the same way so you can yeah. sort of imagine how that could be true
2: there's a, there's a wonderful um, painting by the 15th century artist Simone Martini of Jesus in the temple and his parents arrive Mary and Joseph arriving and um, uh, it's in the Walker Gallery in in Liverpool I recommend it Uh, and Joseph has a a look of thunder on his face (laughs) and and Jesus has his arms crossed with a kind of yeah whatever look (laughs) on his face and you just realise that adolescence hasn't really changed since the 15th century or probably the first century Mm -hmm. really Um, but that's a way of saying Jesus had normal humanity. He went yep. through the
1: normal phases of life, the same hormonal changes that mm. uh, everybody else goes yeah. through. um and, Yeah, and that's because it says in Hebrews, isn't it? He was made perfect through suffering, and that word "perfect" is maybe better translated made mature, teleos.
0: He grew in wisdom and stature. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So
1: there is a proper growth into yeah. into adulthood which is part of being human
0: and all those I mean I, I find it really striking all those years I mean if we assume that Jesus was around 30 by the time he entered into his full public ministry that's all those years mm-hmm. um, that where what what was happening was God wasting his time yep. or or, right. or was it actually yeah. I mean I I think it as, as Mike says it's so important to see that um, that it uh, achievement isn't isn't that the, the mm. The 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 only yeah. thing that we're interested in as as Christians,
1: in a sense that there are proper stages of maturity. Yeah. you know, there's a proper stage of maturity for a five-year-old or a ten-year-old or a fifteen-year-old. That and and actually to to imagine a a grown you know a ten-year-old as a full-grown adult sounds a bit odd. You know, we sometimes meet children who are almost a, too ahead of themselves, and you think this is a bit, all a bit strange. But actually, you know, it, that growth is not imperfection in the sense of of a lack of something. It's uh, and so you can imagine Jesus growing as a, an individual. Okay, he doesn't know everything at age 15 that he knows at age 30, but that isn't in, that isn't imperfection. It isn't sin. It isn't a lack of something. It's just the, the appropriate stages of good, healthy human growing.
2: One of the other stories that we have of an even earlier stage of uh, you know, a prenatal stage of Jesus' um, mm. development is is the story of the visitation, mm. uh, where Mary goes to visit. Her kinswoman Elizabeth, um, and we're told that the baby within Elizabeth leapt in it in her womb mm. um, at, at the presence uh, of of this mm. embryo, um, and I I think that's a, an important corrective to our sense that you need to have a very developed and articulate m- mind in order to mm. respond to God. No, you don't.
1: Mm. <laughs> uh, it, it can be an embryo. It can be in
2: <laughs> at, at an inarticulate and yeah. and. Uh, pre-word stage of, of human development. It, it says a
1: lot about thinking about people with special needs or yes. sort of mental illness or people who you um, don't or, have. Or
2: with Alzheimer's at the other end of life. Exactly, that's whatever. right. You know, yes. that,
1: that's, not a, that's not a bar to knowing God. Yes, Because actually there's something that, that every human being is able to do um, regardless of capacity, ability, whatever else it might be.
0: Mm. and that the, the 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 fetus john responding to the fetus jesus mm. um is not a less successful response mm. to god yep. um than calvin's institutes yeah. for example <laughs> yeah. um uh, and i think it's just a real corrective to our understanding of what really matters yeah yes talking of calvin <laughs> <laughs> i thought you <laughs> might we just actually um
1: well, we may get on to him in a moment, but uh, the, the last question we wanted to look at in this Godpod was: um, uh, we've looked at uh, the the death of Jesus, we've looked at the um, the early years of Jesus. Going on to the other end, we're looking now at the um, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. This is a question from Danny Rogers, who's one of our students here at St. Maltese College. Hello, Danny. Um, he's written lots of questions, but we're, we're trying to get
2: some free tuition. Time. <laughs> <I think> it <laughs> is,
1: it's, <laughs> it's going to help with your essay. Um, <laughs> uh the particularly interesting one is is uh, in his email is this one is jesus incarnate post ascension and subsequently throughout history uh in other words after he is ascended is he ascended as a, a physical body does his human body ascend to the father or does he ascend in spirit in some way um Uh, If he does ascend as a human body, there must be a physical space in which Jesus physically exists at this time, if not what's happened to Jesus in the interim between bodily ascension and bodily second coming. So there's an interesting little question. Um, Anybody want to have a go at this one?
0: Well, I mean, of course, just to begin with, um, Jesus is uh, raised from the dead. Hmm. So whatever else you want to say about the body, it's a resurrection body. um, And the only one that we have any... Knowledge of were. Yeah. so so far, so far,
1: <laughs> and one that has some slightly strange qualities to it. It's clearly a body, in that people see it and they touch it, but it clearly seems to have the ability to uh, appear in strange places, like the, the story of Emmaus. Somehow they they are able to they don't, they don't recognize him, and suddenly they do. Uh, he appears within this within the locked room where the disciples are are uh, you know where, where the doors are, it tells us the doors were locked and Je- Jesus appeared amongst them. It's a it's a it's a body, but it's a different kind of body than the ones that we we know. Of. So it's not a kind of ghost. It's not something less than we are.
2: No, and in some ways, I I like to think that the reason uh, this body could appear through walls is not because the body was insubstantial but that it was so substantial yeah. that the walls were in, insubstantial in comparison yeah. and offered no resistance yeah. that's how real this resurrection body is yeah.
0: but then of course the new testament does make a distinction between the period in which uh, the risen jesus was still accessible um in in risen body form mm-hmm. to his disciples and then the ascension after which mm-hmm. the risen jesus is accessible to us through the through the holy spirit mm-hmm um and and that's i think what danny's getting at what what yep. happens there yes
2: and and one of the points C.S. Lewis makes about the ascension is that if you have a physical resurrection the body's got to go somewhere um and it's interesting that i mean the, the answer the church has i think nearly always given to this question is um that yes he is eternally incarnate um, there's a wonderful early prayer of the church that says that he most wonderfully took on our human nature, as never more to lay it off. That once committed to human beings, he's committed to us forever. And uh, and again, I like to say that he's the ascension is about God's being committed to us eternally and internally. There are molecules and cells that are part of the being of, of the person of the Son now, so God cannot reject humanity without rejecting himself Mm -hmm. yeah
0: and the way the new testament describes that is is the the figure of jesus seated at the right hand of the father Mm -hmm. isn't it for all eternity
1: and it is i mean there is a bit of a debate in this in the church because of course there is a strand of of teaching which you find in someone like origin for example in in the early church who did seem to think of a kind of spiritualized ascension that he did leave behind his body, because because origin has a little bit of that Platonic distaste for the body, and so Origen, and and actually quite a, a number of sort of more recent, I think Schleiermacher has something along these sort of lines as well. That somehow the ascension was actually a spiritual thing, because actually bodies are not really what God is that interested in, and actually it's a somehow a uh, it's a spiritual ascension uh, over against origin is a, is 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 I think as you say that the mainstream tradition which has always said no it, it is a there is a kind of physical ascension. And again, that's been thought of in different ways. I mean, Martin Luther had this idea of the uh, the ubiquity of Christ's post-resurrection ascended flesh, that somehow Christ's uh, humanity beyond the resurrection could somehow be ubiquitous. It could be everywhere. It's a different kind of humanity. It's a kind of, um, you know, it's a if you can imagine that, a sort of the, the humanity of Christ. Uh, and he, he sees very much the humanity and divinity of Christ all bound up together. You can't really separate them out. Um, but the, the humanity of Christ becomes ubiquitous. Um, Calvin isn't, never really liked that isn't idea. Isn't that slightly to confuse the Son and the Spirit, arguably? Yep. I mean, I think you could say that. And I, mean, I, I think it's also probably true that Luther doesn't have a very strongly developed theology of the Spirit. Whereas Calvin does. Whereas Calvin does, and Calvin, of course, doesn't like that idea of the ubiquity of Christ's body. He says, no, no, Christ's humanity is raised to the right hand of the Father. Uh, which he doesn't think of as as a physical space up in the sky somewhere uh, but in the dimension in which god lives you know christ's humanity is there with with, with god and so he doesn't like this idea of christ's f- humanity being ubiquitous but he does have this idea of the holy spirit being sent as the presence of christ with us now which maybe is a slightly more satisfying kind of kind of idea for it so it's a, it's an issue that has been debated quite a bit within church history but i think it seems to me the mainstream tradition is this idea that yes you know christ's yes christ's humanity is raised but and it, therefore our humanity is raised to be with
0: and exactly and that and it has knock on effects on our understanding of our own resurrection doesn't it because um if if we're implying there is some it takes up physical space in the universe hmm. then we're saying there can be presumably only a certain number of people uh, who share in Christ's resurrection? Because there wouldn't physically be space otherwise. So yep. um, that that metaphor that Paul uses about um, a seed that you know turns into something else. Yeah. Um, basically, we don't know what a, a resurrection body looks like or what yep. kind of you know how it exists. Yep. We just know it's not quite the same as. That's right. It, yeah. one so well, I mean, closely Corinthians connected. Is yeah. about, isn't yeah. it?
1: It's bad, isn't it? there are all kinds of different types of flesh: yeah. the flesh of animals, the flesh of, of of humans. There's the kind of physicality of stars and space and everything else and he's saying that you know we mustn't be too kind of narrow in our understanding of what physicality means there are different kinds of phillips physicality than than the bodies that we have now he's 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 inviting us to to stretch our imaginations a bit to think about how this might be there aren't just two realities spirit and flesh and you've only got one or the other there's something much bigger than we can imagine here.
2: I think one of the other things that's going on in that passage is talking about different kinds of flesh. He's saying that post-resurrection, the diversity and variety of creation is is preserved and enhanced, not left behind. And that, Mm. I think, is, again, a polemic against the Platonic view, which had problems with diversity. Uh, It's interesting that Origen, who we were talking about earlier, um, It talks about the problem of evil which is my kind of field and he he does the usual things about people getting sick and people dying being killed in accidents whatever and he but another example for for him is people have different jobs Hmm. as if that's a real problem Uh, because he doesn't like diversity and that's his platonic background coming out again i think if god is one everything ought to be kind of the similar yeah. or no, the same um, and, and Paul is saying no the diversity of creation was always intended mm-hmm. and it's part of its goodness and it will be part of the creation
1: remade mm-hmm. and restored good well thank you um, everybody for all your uh, questions that you've um, sent in um, Jane was saying at the beginning of this god post she was feeling rather sleepy but I think we managed to wake her up a bit we? <laughs> they <laughs> were <laughs> very
0: good questions good they flavor, were very right? good yeah. so there you go
1: um, so, uh, thank you for listening, and uh, it's um, very good to do Godpod. So, thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure. And Jane. Pleasure. And uh, so, it's goodbye from all of us, and uh, we'll be back again soon.
0: That was Godpod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. I can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.